Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD, and tonight with me, my co-host on most nights, and tonight is no exception, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How about you? You know, pretty good. I'm waiting, to, you know, this storm. You know, uh, you go to the supermarket, they say it's, you know, two to four inches, and all the milk and the bread is gone. People are panic buying already, you know? It's, it's nuts. That's the way it is in the Northeast here. You folks in the Midwest, you're probably laughing at us. But, you know, they say two to four inches and people get out of control. They they buy out the supermarket. Crazy. You know, it's like it's like Armageddon is hitting. You know, we're going to touch upon tonight. There's some answers in uh, the Brian Laundry Gabby Petito case. No smoking gun information. But there's still a lot of interest in this case. Uh, and we're going to try to answer some of those questions. And we're going to maybe have some more questions uh, to ask which is also interesting because an investigation, part of investigation is you ask a question, you get an answer. And from that answer, you ask more questions. And that's what investigation is all about. So we're going to talk about that. And Phil and I, that that is like a deep dive, just to bring the case back. There's been some new information on Tuesday of this week reported by News uh, Nation. I want to play a little bit of that. I know there's a lot of interest in this case. So uh, without any more uh, to do, I'm going to play our theme song and we'll get right back to you. It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most popular folks off the cuff. Hello, folks, and welcome back. So the Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry case, we all were following that case. It was an internationally popular case. We know it ended tragically, but there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered. And you know, one of the big questions, of course, it came back that uh, Brian died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. That's really never been answered to the satisfaction of the general public. It's also never been answered as to what caliber the gun was? Was the gun recovered? Because in most suicides, you can't really say it's a suicide unless you recover the gun. And if it is a suicide, the gun should be on the scene. It should not be gone because then you have some questions as to what it is. In this incident, also when they recovered Brian Laundrie's uh, body, there were some other items recovered on the scene. One of them was a diary. And now we, we learned that the family uh, is... I guess you can't say demanding when you're dealing with the FBI, but they want this diary back. And they've been, that story came out this Tuesday. I want to share a little bit of this video and we're going to, we're going to see what, um, what, what they're saying about this is from news nation. And we're going to say what they say about this diary. And um, here it is here. 
Laundry, the sole person of interest in the death of his girlfriend, Gabby Petito. Months after he was found dead in a swampy Florida reserve, there are still so many unresolved questions in the push for justice for Gabby. And tonight, we have learned that Brian's parents are now trying to get their son's personal belongings from the FBI, and that includes that notebook that was found near his body in that swampy Florida reserve. Investigators, investigators say Brian died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. His remains were found a month later following a massive nationwide manhunt. Correspondent Brian Enton has been on this case since the very beginning and joins us live tonight with some new details on uh, the parents now push for access to Brian's estate. So Brian, what does that estate include? Well, it's interesting, Marnie, this entire case, because it's gone quiet for so long, but then all of a the sudden these little tidbits will come out. And this is one of those little tidbits uh, that we learned about today. Uh, the Laundry family attorney confirming that they are now trying to get the notebook, uh, as you mentioned, that belonged to Brian as part of this uh, estate process. Uh, Mr. Bertolino described it to me as the formal proceeding to administer the estate because uh, Brian Laundry didn't have a will. He says that the family has to go through this process. In addition to the notebook, uh, we have learned in court paperwork uh, that the family says Brian Laundry had about $20,000 in a checking uh, and savings account that the parents are also now going after. We're not just talking about the laundries, Brian. I do understand the Petito family has filed a motion as part of the estate or regarding the estate. What more can you share on that? Yeah, uh, Mr. Bertolino, again, the laundry family attorney told us that uh, Gabby Petito's mother, Nicole, uh, is also going through the process of trying to get Gabby's belongings, including some of Gabby's belongings, that still remain in the laundry family home uh, in Northport. Uh, it's sort of interesting that all of this has to happen uh, through these legal channels. You would think that Brian Laundry's parents could just uh, hand over uh, these belongings, uh, but obviously we, we know this is a very complicated situation. Well, and Brian, you mentioned this earlier. We, we, it's not in the headlines anymore like it was. The curiosity has died down a little bit, but there are still a lot of people who are uh, relentless in terms of wanting answers. We want answers just as so many others do in terms of the laundry's activities in their florida home do we know anything about their whereabouts what they've been doing have they been communicating with people are they back to work is life back to normal so, I mean, I don't think it'll ever be really normal uh, in that neighborhood again. And you mentioned it. I mean, we are relentless. Obviously, there's just not enough new information to be doing the stories every day anymore, every week. But behind the scenes, we're digging constantly because there are so many unanswered questions. Uh, in terms of the Laundry family home in Northport, we know they still live there. There was a rumor for a while that it was for sale. Uh, Mr. Bertolino said that was not true. Uh, I've been in touch with the neighbors uh, quite frequently. Uh, they say, you know, it is sort of an awkward situation now. People used to communicate with the laundries. It was friendly before all of this. Now, basically, all of the neighbors uh, just ignore them uh, as this investigation still continues behind the scenes. Well, and I, I'm just curious when we're going to hear from the FBI, from investigators releasing any of this information. I mean, they still have a lot of evidence. They have the van. They have other things that they confiscated from the house. So in terms of that evidence, where is it? When will it be released? Who's going to get it? You know, Phil, it's funny, all of these things. The FBI is not going to come shouting out and saying, okay, now we're going to tell you what happened. Right, of course. Minus reporters digging and sort of uh, filing 
a Freedom of Information Act and when a law enforcement <clears throat> deems it's okay to release the information, that's when the information will be released. But there are so many questions, and some of them were early on in this investigation. Uh, the Laundries had a bunch of guns in their house, and one of them was missing. That probably is the gun that he used to kill himself, if in fact that's what occurred, because we still... I'm not satisfied that that's what occurred because until I hear the evidence of that explained to me, but there, a gun was missing from, so the FBI and local law enforcement know what gun it is, the caliber. And if it matches the gun that was recovered at the scene, that, that is open and shut right there because there's some other questions going on. And maybe you can talk about the couple that was murdered in the Grand Tetons and people questioning on, could Brian have done that too? Like, is he now a serial killer? And that would be, you know, let, let, you, you talk about it, Phil. Okay. You. I, I just want to touch on one thing. I'm going to go out on a limb here. And, you know, uh, when we talked about this case, we've done many, many shows on the whole uh, series of events that took place from the beginning right up until uh, today. I was back on the computer again, doing some research. And I'm just looking at the uh, fact that the FBI came out and said that, uh, it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound by Brian. Now he was in that area for about a month. I don't think there was enough remains just to look at the uh, recovery of crime scene uh, that to, to, to make that determination. Now I'm strongly going to go out on a limb here and think that there is something in that notebook that may have indicated that he killed himself. Now you pointed out something very important. There was a missing gun from the home. That may be part of it. Uh, where they put together that this is a suicide, self-inflicted gunshot wound by Brian Laundry. So with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out a little bit on a limb and think that uh, there was something in the notebook as well as the gun that was missing. Now I want to speak a little bit about Crystal Turner and Kylie Schlute, who were victims of a double homicide found with multiple gunshot wounds in a creek uh, in the uh, Utah area, uh, not far from where Gabby and Brian were seen on the 12th of August when they uh, got into that dispute where the Moab police had uh, responded. And there's a lot of uh, rumors and innuendo swirling around that, that possibly Brian could have been involved. Now the families have hired a private investigator. I don't know if it was both families or one of the families, but they hired a private investigator. He's of the opinion that there is a connection between uh, these two young ladies, Crystal Turner and Kylie Schlute and Brian and Gabby at a place called Woody's Tavern. Woody's Tavern was the last location that these two people were seen before they were found dead. Uh, there was supposedly a person that was described as creepy by them that they talked to someone and they said there was a creepy guy and they were going to move their campsite. They had a campsite in the area. They were going to move it. So now uh, with that said, these two people are found on the 18th murder. They believe that the murder occurred and I'm going to give a reason why I'm stating this somewhere between the 13th of August and the 15th of August. The reason I'm coming to that uh, date, because there was a cell phone tower uh, dump. There was a, a, a search warrant that was done for a cell phone tower on September the 20th. Uh, it indicated that they were looking for cell phone records between uh, early on the 13th of August, all the way through the 15th of August at 9 a.m. So in that search warrant, it said evidence of crime or crimes of a murder, conspiracy to commit murder, tampering with evidence, sexual assault, desecration of a corp, corpse, and rape. So that's telling me if they put all of those things into the search warrant, that's telling me that 
they believe from the crime scene, the investigators do believe that those are the things that may have occurred during this horrible, horrific double homicide. So we're laying out a little bit of a scenario there that this wasn't, you know, just an ordinary, you know, two people shot and killed. It looks like there was a little bit more going on. God only knows what these poor people went through before they were Phil, killed. Phil, let me just stop you there for one second. Sure. If, in fact, the ballistics from Brian Laundrie's suicide matched the ballistics from the double murder in, in, in Moab, we would know that, wouldn't we? There's no I way think, they could keep that. I don't think they could keep that a secret. I, I was just going to get to that. Now, on the 17th of September, before this search warrant was actually executed for the information from the cell tower, and I'll explain a little bit about the cell, cell phone tower dump. Uh, on the 17th of September, the Utah authorities came out and publicly said there was no connection to the Brian Laundry and Gabby Petito uh, investigation. They came out and publicly and said that. So uh, are we to believe that there is a connection and they said that there isn't? I don't think so. Seems like they were pretty confident about that. Is it possible that it's the same gun that was used? Of course it's possible. Now they're talking about uh, also at the crime scene was recovered a silver nine millimeter bullet as well as several shell casings. Apparently the father of one of the victims, I think it was uh, Schlute's dad said that uh, there was a, uh, several guns that were stolen in the area. One of them was particular uh, of that type of ammo, a silver nine millimeter round. And they think there might be a connection. It was before the homicide took place that there was some guns stolen. There was a, a police report done. Uh, several guns were stolen. One of them was a, a very specific model gun that had specific ammunition. And he mentioned silver, nine millimeter ammunition. I don't know how that exactly ties into uh, being specific. Nine millimeter ammunition is nine millimeter ammunition, but something about the silver ammunition, maybe because the silver uh, bullet itself, I don't know if that's uh, particular to that specific gun that was stolen, but he did mention that it was, uh, it, it was something I took off the, uh, off the internet. There was a, a news report about that. So listen, uh, is it possible this was connected it's possible. Of course, it's possible. The authorities came out on the 20th and said, I'm sorry, on the 17th and said it wasn't. Then they executed this search warrant further down the line three days later, looking for information from a cell tower. Now, a cell tower, the closest cell tower to where the murders took place would ping any phone that was in that area. That's what they're looking for. They want to know what phones were in that area. Now, when I say phones, it gives you subscriber information, unless it's a, a burner phone. It'll give you that information too. It can tell you who manufactured the phone, where the phone was shipped, where it was uh, possibly even purchased or, or stocked. So things like that can be found out from a cell tower. But if there was a specific time that they believe the murders took place, which was the 13th to the 15th, they want all cell phones that were in that area. And from there, they can do now a search and see who owns these cell phones. Why were you in the area? What were you doing there? What was your uh, business in that area? Who did you come in contact with? And I think that's going to narrow down suspects with regard to the double homicide. You know, one of the things that someone asked uh, was how um, long were the, was the Landry gun missing? And I believe, I don't have the exact date, but I believe it was as of early September because they that was one of the first things in the search warrant that the FBI looked for and the laundry stated a gun is missing. And that I believe is when Brian had went to that Mayakahatchee preserve. So that's, we assume, and I'm sure they know, we don't know because none of this stuff has been released other than 
you know, internet conjecture basically is is what we're dealing with right now. Of course. But to know for a fact that, no, this is the gun, this is the ballistics from the suicide, and this is the gun and this is the ballistics from the homicide, slams that door shut. But we do not know that for a fact. But the police and the FBI, they're the really only people that count in this investigation. They know for a fact. And if and I believe that if the ballistics did match, we would have heard something about it. Because I, I, it, that I, would I be that, that would be almost impossible to keep quiet. So I think that and of course, you know, that old expression when you assume you make an ass of you and me. Right. But I think that's a sort of a comfortable assumption we can make based on our experience saying, wait a minute, if these if the ballistics matched, they would be letting people know about this because this would ramp up this investigation and make it even bigger than it actually is. For the simple fact, Billy, that people that go camping in that area where this double homicide took place, I mean, there was a double homicide and then there was the, the case of Gabby Petito. So there was two different uh, three people murdered, two different incidents. So obviously there's concern in the area for people that, well, was this a random act? Was it a targeted act? So I think if there was a connection to uh, Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito case, they would have come out and publicly said it. And I think they would have went so far as to say, we believe that the gun that was used was used, uh, the, the gun that was used to, to kill, uh, uh, the two young ladies was the same gun that uh, was used to kill Brian Laundry, which was actually they're, they're labeling it as a, a self-inflicted gunshot wound and a suicide. Now, I just want to make one more point about that. They didn't come out on the day that he was found and say this was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. There was a period of time. Now, in that period of time, they may have been able to recover some type of uh, ballistics or projectiles from that particular gun. There may have been a way to find out, is this the gun? that was missing from the house. And is this the gun that was found at the location where Brian was found? So there probably was a ballistic comparison. I think that along with the notebook would be what would lead them to say that this was a self-inflicted gunshot wound and a suicide because the, 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 the manner of death calling it a suicide uh, is pretty, you know, I mean, they're labeling it. They're coming up pretty strongly on that. And with him being in that area for over a month or close to a month, whatever it was. And we talked about how there was water in the area, that there was three feet of water and then the water receded. I don't think there was enough, you know, in a normal suicide, if a person commits suicide, you could do uh, testing. You know, you can look, examine the wound and see that it was placed against the, the head uh, with, with uh, stippling and different things like that. And then may, there may be gunshot residue on the person's hand. The gun would be right there. There'd be only one round uh, expelled from the gun. You know, there's different things. But if the body is there that long, uh, I don't think it was intact like that. It wasn't an intact crime scene, obviously. So how did they jump to a self-inflicted gunshot wound suicide? It sounds like the gun's missing. Billy, you pointed that out. They probably went for that right away. All right, we're going to give you all the guns we have. That's probably what the warrant said from by the FBI. But one of them's missing. Now, he has it, allegedly. Uh, maybe he wrote something in the notes and uh, indicated that, you know, that he, he was going to kill himself. And then you'll have consistent. They did recover a skull. We know at least the skull was recovered. It would be a consistent uh, gunshot wound, maybe with a, a contact mark on the head and uh, all the different, uh, you know, forensic things that would come up in, in, in an autopsy to show that uh, this was a, uh, a bullet wound to the head that was probably, you know, in a close proximity to the to the skull.
Um, Sarah, Claire, Claire, I'm going to answer your question. In Florida, are law enforcement being looked into because of mistakes to make things better that they won't happen again? You know, I, uh, Sarah, Claire, uh, Claire, um, in every major investigation, it's always a good uh, idea to do a critique on yourself, on the work that you did, on the work that all the investigators did. Did the police, uh, the Northport police, make mistakes in that case? 100%. Do, do human beings make mistakes all the time? 100%. Do police make mistakes all the time? Yes, they do. Um, do they, should they be disciplined for these mistakes? Should be publicly you know, uh, chastised over this? I think not. I think that they're going to have to learn from their mistakes. I think we've seen um, the chief from that organization come on and admit that they made some mistakes, but they also seem to be almost at one point being self-congratulatory, and I don't think they really could afford to do that. Were there mistakes made by the Moab police? Yes. I mean, we, but you know something we can Monday morning quarterback. Life is in real time. You know what I mean? And in real time, people make mistakes. and there's no malice in those mistakes. I think, can they use additional training, more training? Always, always you can use more training. And I'd be the first one to say, I've made tons of mistakes during my law enforcement career, but it's, you know, everyone has 20-20 hindsight. That's, that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And, you know, if you think of the amount of mistakes that people make in the private sector, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, how about the mistakes doctors make? Lawyers make, dentists make. How many of you guys wanted to kill your dentist? <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? going to, every case is so unique and nothing is exactly the same. Now we get training, we go to uh, in-service training, we go to the police academy, wherever it is, uh, interview and interrogation training, crime scene training, all the different things. And every case that you work on is unique. You might ask a thousand people a question, you might get a thousand different answers. The way you ask the question, how you ask it, what is in the question, you know, so everything is a little different. And sometimes I don't think it's so much that it's mistakes. I think it's more of a learning process. We do things in a case and maybe we might do something and realize later on, well, maybe we shouldn't have did it that way. We should have done it this way. And the next time we're involved in a case, we might do things a little differently. It might be a change of tactics. And then there are things that are brought out in this case, specifically with the interaction with the Moab police on the 12th. We talked about how uh, they went above and beyond. They they separated them. They put her in the van and he went to a hotel overnight. And then uh, somebody came up with and said, maybe they should have checked on them the next day. I think that was a great idea. So maybe that little piece of information could be something that going forward, another domestic violence case, uh, maybe separate them, do the same thing, but now check on them next day or even ask them, ask the person who you think might be in danger. Are you, do you feel safe? Are you okay? Those are the things we're going to learn from this horrible tragedy. Those are the things that we could use going forward. So are there mistakes? You can call them that, I guess, but I think it's more of something, uh, you know, you just, it's like a learning experience. You're going to just do things a little differently. And, you know, what can we do in this situation if God forbid there's another one or next time that could maybe prevent it? And I think that's where we're, uh, that's where we're going with this, this type of, uh, you know, critique on, on what those cops did and, and everything in the case really, you know. Uh, Casey Nash, uh, Sergeant Cannon, what is the possibility that law enforcement is holding info close to avoid more criticism in this day and age of anti-police. Look, 
I think the posture that the police should take in a major investigation like this is not to release a lot of information. Releasing lots of information to the press and to the public can really hurt your case. It really can because it, it gives too much information out there to potential suspects who you have yet apprehended or you, for example, a double homicide in mob. They don't know who did that. So if you put too much information out there, they can thwart the investigation through knowing what the police have and knowing what the police don't have. Good question. Uh, Casey Nash. Yes, I love uh, Alicia B. I love this. I think it's great. We have a, a saying in sailing. Anyone who claims to have never run aground is a liar or they never left the dock. I, I love that. That's a great little expression. Yeah. We're it's human. So I mean, let's face it. Uh, you know, things happen sometimes. And and look, good investigators, good police, experts in the field, they don't make huge mistakes. They don't make mistakes that will cost the case in court down the line. They just don't do that. Sometimes a little thing here and there. And, and again, I think it's more of a learning experience or a learning curve or whatever you want to call it. Sometimes... Uh, each case is so unique. I've never done uh, an, a murder investigation or any investigation that it was exactly the same in two cases. It's not like that. Every case is unique. You're dealing with different people, different personalities, uh, different circumstances. So, you know, no, no two cases are alike for sure. You know, Phil and myself in, in running a homicide investigations, which most of my job was to running the case and having six detectives working with me, and deploying the personnel to different things. And one of the most important things that I did, most of the time I would not do the interviews and the interrogation, but I would watch them closely. Because if I could, if I determined that a detective or detectives were not a good match in the room for the person they were interviewing, I would at some time stop the interview. And I would do it very respectfully. And I'd call the detectives out and I'd be like, what do you guys think? You know, I've been watching this for like an hour or two hours. I don't, it doesn't seem like you have a good rapport with this guy. You think you're going to be able to get any information out of him. And more times than not, they would say, Sarge, you know something, you're right. Maybe you should put someone else in there. I was going to say that, Billy. I, I would pull myself out of a, an interview if it was not going good because let's let's face it. What's the goal? The goal is to get justice for the victim. And there's just sometimes you could just you could say good morning to a perpetrator or, or a suspect and he doesn't like the way you said it and he's just not going to open up to you. It's, it's not going to happen. Sometimes that happens. And then there are other times when, you know, the flow is going good. And, and I've talked about I, I had a, a cop homicide where a, a sergeant was killed and, uh, you know, he was, he was actually retired a short period of time, but these guys were serial killers. They killed like five different people. And we had the guy in the room, me and my partner, he started giving it up. And then the bosses at the time, they felt that they, you know, I was, I was failing the detective. They wanted to put uh, somebody more, uh, you know, more time on the job and more, more seasoned detective. And they brought a guy in from the homicide squad. They wanted to have a homicide squad detective and a more seasoned detective from my squad at the time. They put them in there. The guy was in the, uh, both of them were in the room for two minutes. They came out and said, don't go anywhere. He only wants to talk to you and your partner. We wound up going back in, getting a full confession on five different murders. So sometimes, you know, you can't, if the flow's going and you know, like you said, you're watching Billy, sometimes the flow's going. You don't want to upset that flow. You don't want anything to get in the way of you getting information and you got a good rapport with the guy. You don't want him shutting down. And, and Phil, there's nothing worse when, than when two detectives are in there and I'm there watching and some big boss, a chief or something says, have them ask him this right now and you're like oh you just want to you want to just kill 
but you have to say, yes, chief, I'm going to do that right now. And that could totally ruin the flow of the interview and the interrogation. But guess what? You know, he's got those uh, stars on his shoulders and uh, I only have the stripes. So I have to do what I'm told. And I've seen that destroy, you know, someone asked another question, a good question about uh, the finances. Now, many of those things that happen behind the scenes, investigative steps like that are done by the district attorney. They will subpoena the the financial records of Gabby Petito. They will uh, subpoena the financial records of Brian Laundrie and his family. So they know all this information. We're all asking this now, but they've probably known this for months. So I just want you guys to know that. So much of the investigative things that we are asking here are done by rote. They're just done as a matter of course. They're done as a matter of almost like an investigative checklist. So we're sort of running blind here. And as we said, we're we're content creators. We're not investigators per se that's on the scene and privy to all of the information that they have. And as such, we can predict what they're doing, but we don't know for a fact the information that the FBI has and that the Northport police have and the Moab police have. We don't know that. Would we like to know that? Yeah, that we'd be able to answer all your questions. But we can just tell you from our experience what we think is going on. There's something very important that I think we need to touch on. And we've touched on it before, but I really want to drill down on it. On the 17th of August, now August the 12th is when the dispute takes place and the interaction with the Moab police five days later on the 17th. Now what happened between the 12th? Well, I guess on the 13th, cause we know they were separated till the 13th. So between the 13th and the 17th for those four days, what happened in Brian laundry and Gabby Petito's lives that he decided on the 17th, that he was going to fly back to Florida. He flew into Tampa on the 17th who paid for the flight. What was the purpose? They, they tell us the attorney says that the purpose was to empty out some type of a uh, storage unit. While he was in Florida, in Tampa, in uh, uh, near his home in Northport, uh, from the 17th to the 23rd, what were his movements? We would be able to find out from cell phone records. Where there would be surveillance cameras in the storage unit. When you go into a storage, you got to key your way in. It would obviously tell you who keyed in, uh, you know, what storage unit number because you're putting in a certain code. So there's a lot of unanswered questions there. And then again. What happened with Gabby in those days? Where was she? Who did she interact with? Who did she stay with? Where was she? What part, What were her movements? I think those things are very important to this case between the 17th and the 23rd. It's kind of a blackout period. I'd really like to know what his movements were, what her movements were, and we could very easily find out. It may have already been done. Obviously, the FBI and the, and the local police were involved in this case. They may have already done that. But I think that might... Uh, produce a lot of uh, answers to questions that we really don't know the answers to as of yet. You know, Marilyn Mineta, I'm going to give you an example, and uh, that's a very good question. Isn't it a case of not letting the people know just so much or because the, they can blow the case? We're going to have Gil Carrillo on next Tuesday, the 11th, and he's the case detective from the Night Stalker case, the Richard Ramirez case, probably the most savage serial murderer I've ever read the case history on. He wore a very specific type of shoe. And during one of the murders, he left shoe footprints in the garden. That is something that you do not ever want to put out there. The chief of police told uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, I think who was 
the governor or some government official of, of that uh, part of Los Angeles at the time, he told her about it. She let it out in a press conference. They wanted to shoot her because now the killer's never, ever going to wear those shoes again. Of course, of course. And, 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 you know, so this was a piece of evidence that only the police knew. And if they saw those shoes again, they would know that's the same guy. I mean, they would know by signature and MO, you know, they can hypothesize this is the same guy. But those shoes, the print that they left, were a slam dunk piece of evidence. So I'm giving you an extreme example, but that's why you don't let the public or anyone else but the police know about things like that. On, on a specific case, like the case that you're talking about, the Night Stalker case, I mean, you could have copycats. If there's too much information out, you could have people, uh, maybe they want to kill someone and they want to blame it on the Night Stalker. So they do a copycat type murder and they throw it in there and it gets mixed in with all the others. And, you know, you could have a murderer getting away with murder because of too much information out there. That's just one instance. The obvious instance that you just brought up, Billy, with a, a unique footprint on a, on a pair of shoes. Obviously that's a very, very important piece of information and her being naive to investigations, uh, Diane Feinstein, she gave it up. It was probably, uh, they were probably pulling their hair out of their head when that happened, but obviously, uh, they wound up catching the guy and, uh, having Gil on, I think is going to be a great, uh, great guest. It's going to be a great interview. Uh, just to, just to be in his presence, you know, you know, you know something, Phil, I'm so excited about it because, I've been trying to get a hold of him. Well, I've I've been reaching out to him for over a year, and he's so busy, and so many people want him on the on their podcast that you know I'm sure he says no or just ignores most requests. But I think what got his attention was I told him I said you know I, I told him who I was, and I said our subscribership were almost at twenty five thousand, and I said you know. We've interviewed Sammy the Bull Gravano, and he, I think he he liked that. And he told me he watched it. He goes, that was a great interview. And I think that's what convinced him to email me back, and he called me. And I spent an hour talking to him on the phone, which, I mean, talk about a Babe Ruth of investigators, right? Sure. I was so thrilled to meet him, and it was my honor to meet him. And I didn't meet him. I spoke to him on the phone. And what a nice, nice guy, you know, and just like, you know, cops, you don't need an introduction. You you hit the ground running and you you speak the same language. And it was it was really a great so Tuesday the eleventh at nine o'clock, Phil and I are gonna have the great privilege of interviewing uh Gil Carrillo, who incidentally did thirty-eight years with the Los Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office and retired as a lieutenant. He actually ran the homicide squad by the time he was leaving. And and what a great boss. Uh he wasn't a Monday morning quarterback. He wasn't a guy that told you how to run your case. He said, you run your case. He goes, I won't tell you what to do. You ask my opinion, I'll give it to you. Other than that, you do what you do. You run your own case. I well, that was that, great. That's, that's the sign of a good boss, Billy, because I mean, listen, if you guys are off in some crazy direction, obviously you got to pull them by the collar and wake them up. But if you have good investigators, you know, your people, you let them do. Listen, I was always a big believer in letting detectives detect 
And that's what the job is all about. Um, I worked for a guy by the name of Jimmy Luongo. You know, Jimmy, he retired as a chief. Uh, he was famous for that. He would, you know, just keep him up to date on what's going on. But guys, go do your detecting, do what you got to do. And, you know, if you know what you're doing and you're a seasoned investigator, you're not going to make any big screw ups. Uh, you keep the boss in the loop. You you get his advice and his help. And uh, that's just makes that was a great squad that I worked in the six O squad. I, I always tell people that was where I cut my teeth and uh, it was just a great place to work. I'm sure it's still a great place, but uh, obviously people like Jimmy Luongo have retired and moved on and hopefully there's some other good bosses there. But, uh, you know, uh, Bill, there was, you know, you and I went over so many different things, questions that we were going to talk about tonight, you know, unanswered. There's one particular thing I think is probably, Maybe a lot of people think about it when they think about this case. On August the 30th, Gabby's mom received a text from Gabby's phone. Now, we believe she was murdered on the 27th. So the the assumption is, is that it was Brian sending a message on the phone. He referred to, uh, well, whoever it was that sent the text message referred to the grandfather by his first name. And the mother thought that that was very odd. But my question is this. They can get the text message information and they can get the phone information and they can tell where that phone was, what location that phone was when it was sent. I mean, it might not be so important, but if it was taken at a rest stop along the way, maybe there's video evidence of Brian. Uh, possibly you could see scratches on his face if there was a struggle. Now, the, August the 30th is only three days after when we believe she was murdered. So if, if there was a struggle, there was a fight. There could be scratches on his face that wouldn't have healed. Uh, there might be something else. I don't know. There might have been an inter interaction with a gas station attendant or where was he? I think that that was important on the 30th when that text message was set, sent. He was probably trying to cover his tracks to show that she was still alive. They had been reaching out with text messages or calls or whatever. So he sent a text message back. And I believe in the text message, he had them in a, in a different area of the country. Uh, so again, had he been found alive, I think that that would have been very important to show that he was in possession of the phone and he was making this text message and he was trying to make a, a cover story. Uh, whether or not it's really that important to the case now regarding whether or not he killed her, I don't know if that would be the case, but you never know. If the phone, like I said, was in a location where you could recover some video evidence, I would like to have had that to maybe you know, do a close up on his face, on his hands to see if there were any marks on him. And uh, that's just one of the other things that I came up with regard to uh, things that are unanswered at this point. I want to answer a couple of questions in the chat. Uh, Casey Nash, where are Gabby and Brian's phones? The phones are yeah. invoiced by the FBI. They have them. Hopefully they've, they've done a forensic examination of them. They have all the information out of them that they need to hopefully conclude this investigation. Sajin688, uh, I mean, their mistake wasn't a small one. They literally lost track of the one person they needed to keep track of. They, at one point, mistaken him for his mom. Come on, they took. They looked nothing alike. You, you're 100% right. That was a huge mistake. We spoke about that when it occurred in real time. But you know something? What are you going to keep doing? You're going to keep beating them down? We, they know they made a mistake. They acknowledge they made a mistake. That could I mean, have been a manpower issue too, Billy. You know, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that could have been a manpower issue. They didn't realize how uh, big the case really was blowing up. I mean, I'm not trying to make an excuse. Uh, yeah, you know something, Phil. I think you're right. I think they actually had video watching them. Yeah, and they didn't have yeah. a, they didn't have bodies on the scene. Yeah, they were they were they were using a video camera, and on a video camera, a person would have had could have been mistaken or whatever. And, and listen, it should have been manned 24 hours a day by a human body. I mean, let's face it. 
You know, Phil, yeah, there was, yeah. there was, you, you're making total sense. There was a case in Manhattan where a serial killer actually got away and fled the scene because of overtime. The boss didn't want to pay the detectives overtime to con conduct the yeah, surveillance. The serial killer <laughs> fled down to Florida. So now instead of paying the overtime, now they got to pay a trip for two detectives. He got into a hostage situation. The whole thing was a mess. Yeah. But you, you know, like people just can be a when they say, that. yeah, when they say things like, oh, you won't believe this, they, they wouldn't spend the money. So this happened as a result, you know, and that's uh, it, it's a crazy thing. But they, they put it under the things you wouldn't believe and things that you wouldn't believe are the things that happen. You know, folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. We also have a Patreon with three different levels, uh, the bucket, uh, polish my rack, and dipped in butter. And uh, the, the the highest level on the Patreon is $9.99 a month. I think it's uh, $5.99, $6.99, and $9.99. And that helps us uh, continue to do this show. And all the folks that are, have the green font in the chat, they're members of our YouTube. And thank you guys so much. You really contribute. We have six levels with that. The bucket, $2.99 a month. Uh, uh, coffee with Canon at $6.99 a month, uh, $9.99 a month, Polish My Rack, $24.99 a month, Dipped in Butter, and the premier site, which we actually have one guy that does this, $49.99 a month for heated Dipped in Butter. How, how, how must that feel? But I just want to thank all you guys that are our subscribers, our uh, Police Off the Cuff YouTube family. Thank you so much. It really helps us do this show. Uh, you know, Phil, when, when we're get, getting back into this, it's like there are lots of unanswered questions. Will the questions ever be answered to the satisfaction of the average YouTube um, person that's watching and listening to the different uh, channels? Uh, there is no obligation of the FBI or the police to say, okay, here's all the answers to all the questions for all you YouTubers. That's not going to happen. The way that most of the information comes out is that the press will, in fact, dig a little further and they'll find out certain things. I mean, I would love to know what was the caliber of the gun that Brian Laundrie used to commit suicide? Was the gun on the scene? If it wasn't, how did you determine it was a suicide? There's so many unanswered questions. There really is. And to my satisfaction and to many people, of course, in the chat, uh, they haven't been answered to the satisfaction. I do believe that one day we're going to get uh, most of these things answered, uh, whether it be a 48 hours episode or a journalist doing a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, over time, and listen, you know what? The family should have privacy. Uh, two people died. Uh, two families are mourning the loss of uh, loved ones. So I guess over time, uh, eventually these things may come to the surface. Uh I don't know if we're ever going to get a hundred percent of all of the questions answered, but I think we're going to get a lot of them answered. And uh, as far as the, uh, the jump to a self-inflicted gunshot wound with Brian, I think we're going to get the answer to that. I think it's going to lie in those notes and the family. I mean, they have a right to, if it's his personal property, uh, once the investigation is concluded or to the satisfaction of whoever is in charge of that evidence, I guess it would be the FBI. Uh, they should get the, uh, the 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 property returned as well as uh, whatever property is in the laundry home that belongs to Gabby. They should get their 
daughter's belongings back and whatever property was recovered in the van or wherever, you know, when she was found. So, I mean, listen, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, some of them can be answered right away with uh, a look into the case folder. I mean, crime scene will, will reveal what condition Gabby's body was in, whether it was clothed, unclothed, partially clothed, what remains were there. Same thing with Brian. If the gun was found on the location where his, where his skull was found, what parts of his body were found at the location, what was in the notebook. So a lot of the simple questions will be answered. The more difficult ones, is there a, a, a connection to this other double homicide? That's a real easy one. I think if the, if the, uh, the police are, are satisfied and they came out publicly, like I said earlier, that there was no connection between Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry, and that double homicide, then I'm going to go with that. I'll believe in that. This private investigator is uh, coming up with these uh, conspiracy theories, I guess you could call them. He's saying that they were in the same location, this Woody's uh, Tavern. Uh, I mean, things like that should be looked at, investigated. Uh, yeah, but you know something, Phil, else. all of those things could be blown to smithereens by information that law enforcement knows. And if, if he was on to yeah. something, they would pull him in and say, hey, how'd you know that? But he's, they're not because- yeah. They know things he doesn't know. Phil, you want to give this a quick read? Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, I actually invited Joe on the show tonight, but uh, I got no response. I just sent him a stream out. I said, if you're available and you want to jump on, because he could have answered a lot of legal questions because, sure. for example, the, the Laundry family through their lawyer trying to get uh, Brian's property back. That's a legal document. It has to be filled out by a lawyer. I know that uh, in, in uh, New York City, it would be requested uh, from an attorney to a to the district attorney. And then there's things like probate court, and there's all these courts that release the property of a DOA after it clears the district attorney, because this is evidentiary. So it has to be stamped by the DA release, a DA's release. Yeah. Uh, the DA's release would release the evidentiary part of it. And then you'd have the uh, the local county would have to be in line with uh, whether or not the property is going to the rightful person. Uh, the public administrator, I know how that's how it works in, in New York. We have a thing called the public administrator. The public administrator would determine after evidence is released uh, whether or not, you know, if the person who owns the property is dead, then the public administrator has to determine who in fact, would get that property. I, uh, obviously, they would determine the next of kin. That's generally how I think it would go. I'm sure that Joe would have been able to answer it, like you said, had he been here. But that's the general Well, you know something, even with it. dealing with families that are going for the property of a DOA family member, uh, you know, it, look, for example, say the the the, the father in, of a, a prominent family died and there's lots of kids and they're all trying to get the money, which you've seen before. That's one of the reasons the surrogate court slows them down and says, whoa, 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 where's the will? You right. know, and where who is who is the executor of the will? Yeah. Who has the, you know, and it, because, you know, people could come in and just pilfer someone's apartment. They could come in and take things that they, they're not entitled to. Sure. So that's why there are laws like this and not even, in this we're talking a, uh, a suicide and a homicide. And 
So you can see how much more complex the law gets to protect their property because who's entitled to the property? And we first have to get this property released because it was evidentiary in nature. So all of those questions have to be answered. And it, it, it's not, there's no simple answers. I mean, I'm sure you see, you see even in your own family, you know, someone dies, everyone's like, oh, that's mine. They're like, wait, oh, go ahead, take it. I don't, I don't want it. You know, but it gets ugly sometimes, you know. It really it's does. amazing. It's amazing. You talk about it. And I've seen it in a lot of different families, a lot of different instances where, uh, you know, a person dies. I'm, I, I know of a wealthy family, a person died and uh, one brother was a little more involved in the business than the other brother. And that brother wanted to cut out the brother who wasn't so involved. And uh, I don't know, my, my family has always had the opinion that, and I'll never forget my uncle said it to me. If I have three kids and I have three apples, each kid gets an apple. And that's, you know, keep it simple. I, you can't tell people what to do. There's always somebody that, well, I took care of mom better than, you know, whatever. <laughs> except, but, Phil, uh, I, I love the I love this street term, but except there's some thirsty mofos in families. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> sure. it's, it's amazing how money, uh, money oh, changes. Oh, my God. Well, changes. Money yeah. can make hey, people you know, going into the uh, the the next to kin stuff. You know, uh, there's like an order that you would go in when you're not married. It would go parents, then it would go siblings. But when you talk about a person that's married, that supersedes. It goes right to spouse first, then it goes to children. You know, so there's a there's a pecking order on who gets what and what the order of next to kin would be. I wish Joe was here; he could have probably went over that a little better. But but you know something, Phil. That's why everyone, you know, uh, and if all you folks listening in the chat, everyone should have a will because if you don't have a will, you're not defining things the way things need to be defined. Yes, yes. You know, each person gets a you know an equal amount or, but then it gets complicated by different assets and it has to be spelled out. And people always think that, Oh, uh, how old are you? I'm 50. You don't have a will yet. No, I, I'm, I'll, I'll wait. Oh, keep waiting. You never know. You know. <laughs> and you, you know, don't know. It prevents the arguments. You know, if you have a will and you, I'm just trying to figure out now, who am I going to give my rack to? I only have one. Rack, <laughs> who am I going to give that rack to? One of my three That's right. That's right. They They might be fighting over it. You know, they say the, yes. you know, I would fight over this rack though. Yeah. If this was <laughs> Mikey Heinrich's rack, <laughs> I would say, what rack. is, what is this rack worth? I want dad's rack, you know, because, yeah. uh, I'll polish it even. I'll keep it above my bar. There's a lot of conversations to talk about that one, right? Put that in a glass frame and put it over your bar, like you said, and just admire it. That's, that, that's good, good right. men, Mikey Heinrichs, good people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, folks, we didn't really think we were going to answer a million of your questions because we still have lots of questions. You know, there were numerous search warrants done early on in this investigation. We still don't know the results of any of those search warrants. Those search warrants could and should have answered lots of questions that we don't know the answers to, you know? So those are the things that, uh, you know, that I'd like to the, see the return on the search warrants to, you know, what, what the, uh, the search warrant recovered or revealed, you know, that would be interesting too. So I guess down the line, you know, you never know, maybe, uh, maybe some of this stuff will become public with the FOIA requests. Yeah, I, you know, it's not going to become public unless the news uh, pushes to release the information because no one, they're not, the FBI or the, the police aren't going to say, okay, here's all the information we got. They're going to blot it out. They, they, they blot yeah, it out, so. that, that never, ever happens. You know, yeah. they, they, when a case is closed, the police move on to the next thing. They're not looking to inform the public about what occurred. You know, it's just ridiculous. Uh, 
Casey Nash, the pieces to the puzzle fit for me until proved otherwise. Um, Jeffrey Crowley, I need to get that while you guys are talking among yourself. I'm trying to... Uh, Peter Pranzo is in the chat. Thank you, Lieutenant Pete. Schmitty, I, I know you you have COVID. I hope you feel better. Uh, from what I read before, it's not very severe. You don't have severe symptoms. I still hope you uh, heal up real fast. Uh, Alicia B., I'm sure you are busy at Angela Ng was spitballing. You guys are learning these little uh, slang terms from us, huh? Uh, <laughs> Let it be summer reminding me I got to get my will in order. Yes, we all do. We, and you, actually, you're supposed to update it every few years. I don't know how many years, but uh, unless you're satisfied with it, you know. But uh, Patty L., I only have one son. Easy. <laughs> well, you should still spell it out. What's, uh, you know, what he gets and where it is. And, you know, where is some of the stuff, you know? You could, you People got, don't you realize that uh, the, the the horror stories and the messes that are left sometimes when there's no will and, uh, you know, it's uh, – it, one kid, it seems simple, but I, who knows, you know, what are your assets, you know? So you got to really think about those things. It's unfortunate to, to have to think about it, but it could preclude a big uh, problem down the line if, God forbid, something does happen to you, you know? Yeah, I another have. Thing, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Billy, but uh, another good thing is a healthcare proxy. Healthcare proxy, if you become incapacitated, what are your wishes? Do you want to be kept alive on a machine or no? You know, those those things are very important. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you wind up in an emergency room and you're not able to speak for yourself. Uh, and there's nobody that speaks for you with the healthcare proxy. Then uh, they could just, you know, throw you onto a, a life support system and maybe you didn't want to be on it, you know? So those are things. You know, that, Phil, uh, I, I, I used to tell a joke when I used to do stand up comedy and I always say, used to say that, you know, most people have DNRs. That means do not resuscitate. But I go, I have a pension that dies when I die. So I have a DR. It's called do resuscitate because my wife wants to keep that pension going. Even if I weigh 60 pounds, I'm dribbling on myself in a, a tube. A minute from being DOA, she wants to collect that next check. That was, yeah. I was told. I told it as a joke. It was meant to be funny. Yeah. But maybe well, I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to do a D on myself. Do <laughs> do I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave a wake of disaster if something happens to me. God <laughs> so true. Well, Phil, I think we were we agreed. We we're just going to try to do uh, about an hour tonight. Yeah, and uh, touch upon this. We felt that uh, it needed to be told. Two days, two cents. Laugh out loud. That's. That is terrible. It's terrible. That's why it's funny. That's why I told it as a joke. I thought it was funny. Not a DNR, a DR. <laughs> and, you know, my wife didn't like to be the brunt of the joke that she was going to keep me alive, even though I was suffering because she wanted to collect my pension. <laughs> yeah. but, keep uh, them going. Keep them going. <laughs> keep them alive. I don't care if you have to use artificial means. Put them on 10 machines. I got to. It's, it's the first of the month. <laughs> keep them alive till the first. That's right. <laughs> so, Phil. Final words. <laughs> Final words. Listen, uh, this case is heart-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, that are going to go unanswered. We're trying to come to some conclusions on some of the things. I think we touched on a lot of them tonight. Bill had sent me a bunch of questions. I came up with a bunch of questions. We went over them. Uh, obviously, we didn't hit everything, but... Again, keep uh, Gabby Petito and even Brian Laundrie's family in your prayers. Uh, let's hope that that double homicide is uh, solved with those two young ladies, uh, Crystal Turner and Kylene Schluth. Nobody should be murdered uh, 
and and have it go uh, unsolved. Uh, justice for those people. Uh, Bill and I have a few things in the shoot. We got that Tuesday night show coming up with uh, the guy from Gil Carrillo from um, uh, what's the name of it again? The uh, it's uh, the Night Stalker case. I'm Richard sorry. Ramirez. I'm still not 100 percent with this COVID that I went through a few weeks back. But yeah, the the, the Night Stalker case. Um, I got a couple of recipes. Bill and I are going to do a couple of segments of. Uh, we're talking about veal parmesan in one, and we're going to be talking about Italian zeppelis in the other one. I'm not going to say anything more than that. You guys, and you know, you, you guys, you guys might want Phil to have these recipes in his will because they may die with him when he dies. These recipes die. <laughs> very important. Very important. So we, we're working on that. We're working on a few other guests. We're going to have a lot of good things coming up this year. Uh, Let's keep our chin up. We we know what's going on in New York. We did that show yesterday about oh, the God. Uh, district attorney in Manhattan. But uh, uh, let's just uh, keep our chin up and uh, hope for the best. And uh, it was great being on with you, Billy, tonight. And I can't wait for Tuesday. It's going to be a great show. Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for coming by. I saw a lot of people tonight in the chat that I haven't seen in a while. I guess you don't love us anymore. But the love is returning, I hope. And uh, come back. But thank you so much for coming back. And uh God bless, and we'll see you the next time. Stay safe. One episode.